We sing the word together. We pray the word together. And we hear the word of God read. And we hear the word of God explained. As you can tell then, God's word is important to us. We're not a church where we gather to hear what the pastor has to say. In fact, I, I, uh, I don't even like to go by the title pastor all that much because I'm just one of us who needs to be sitting under God's Word and hearing what God has to say. And my practice as a preacher is to stand in front of, in front of you and read through a passage and do the best I can in explaining it to you so that God's Spirit can work through His Word in your heart. And so we are working through the book of Hebrews together. You can see uh, the, the title for our series, From Shadows to St- Substance, A Word for Weary Christians. That'll be on the screen behind me throughout the whole series. I encourage you to remember that as kind of a tagline for the book of Hebrews, because I think it helps you understand the book of Hebrews. And we're just partway into our series. We're just kind of beginning it. And we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 4. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack that looks like this. It's on page 1001. So I encourage you to open up to page 1001 or Hebrews chapter 1. And I'm going to read the passage. One of the things we do just collectively to say God's word really matters. It's a tradition actually that goes all the way back to the Old Testament is the standing for the reading of God's word. So would you stand as we hear God's word read? Hebrews 1, 5 through 2:4. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable in every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to those who heard, to us by those who heard. Will God also bear witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit 
distributed according to his word. You can be seated as we pray. Father, those who neglected the old message found judgment. Now, with the message of Christ, if we neglect it, how much greater our condemnation. And so help us to hear. Help us not to ignore the word you've laid out before us today. By your Spirit, we are saying collectively, move in our midst. We are opening our hearts to your voice. I pray that it would not be my voice that's heard today, but your word would be clear to us and your spirit would use that to penetrate hearts, to shape us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to rebuke us. Father, whatever it is we need, you know, you know each person here and what our needs are. Father, I need to hear your word this morning. We all need it. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Father, That's our posture. So work in our midst, in Christ's name. Amen. Now suppose I was asked to give a lecture to a literature class at a local university. Now suppose also that I was convinced that their failure to grasp literature, at least with any sophistication, stemmed from their failure to appreciate William Shakespeare. If that were the case, how might I begin my lecture to them? Perhaps with a stern rebuke, a blistering critique of this new Shakespeare-less generation. Perhaps with an extended list of reasons they need to return to Shakespeare. Reason number one. The bard was the greatest literary mind this world has ever seen. Reason number two, today's greats, Rowling, Collins, and King, all stand on the shoulders of Shakespeare, and so on and so on. Or perhaps I could begin the lecture like this. It wasn't J.K. Rowling who wrote, To thine own self be true. Nor did she write, Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste death but once. Susan Collins never penned, Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And Stephen King didn't quip. Golden lads and girls all must as chimney sweepers come to dust. What would I be doing if I chose that third approach? when I gave my lecture. I'd be whetting their appetites 
inviting them to a meal that I knew they needed by teasing them with a bit of its goodness. And that's exactly how the author of Hebrews begins this wonderful book. He's writing to a church, remember, that had started out really well, but had grown threadbare in their faith. They were suffering from spiritual anemia. They were weary Christians. And they were threadbare in their faith because they had refused to press further into Jesus getting to know Him in all His beauty and all His fullness as put forth in the Scriptures. They they knew Jesus at at a certain level, but they'd failed to press on to a mature knowledge of Him. They were instead content to know Him kind of just a basic level. They're like the dad who knows his son as an athlete, but that's all he ever knows him as. He's content to know him as the star athlete and nothing more. And because they'd refused to go deeper into their relationship with Jesus, to really know him in the way that the scriptures hold him out with all his facets and all his beauty, because of that, the author tells us their hands had become feeble and their knees had become weak. So, in light of this, what does the author of Hebrews do at the outset of this book. He doesn't begin with a stern rebuke, though he will get to that later on. He doesn't give a list of reasons why they need to know Jesus better, though the book will eventually provide that. No. He begins by wetting their appetites, inviting them to delve into the Scriptures, and to get to know Jesus better. You may have noticed as I read that our passage starts out with there are seven quotations from the Old Testament. You might not have known that all those quotes that are set aside are from the Old Testament. But all seven of those quotes are from the Old Testament. And each is carefully chosen to draw them in and make them want to get to know Jesus better through a deeper study of the Old Testament. He is wetting their appetites. He is winsomely drawing them in. Now, he does so at least ostensibly by comparing Jesus to the angels. So if you noticed in verse 5, it begins with the word for. Now, that's a follow-up on verse 4, which says, having become Jesus, or the Son, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs, for. So these seven verses are helping us compare Jesus, or more accurately, to use the language of the passage, the Son, to the angels. It's, It's a comparison being set up. But, and this is important, if we read this, Simply as a treatise on why Jesus is better than angels, we actually completely misread the passage. And I think this error has led many to feel bored or distant from this passage when they read it. I mean, I'm not really struggling with whether Jesus is better than the angels. 
And these quotations, they don't even make sense to me and how they all add up to say, Jesus is better than the angels. It's just kind of boring. I don't get it. The key to really understanding this string of seven quotations is to look at what comes immediately before and immediately after them. The bookends of the passage. Now, I have a true confession for you. I don't like reading. I am not a reader. I'm definitely not an avid reader. Now, some of you might have been fooled. I'm good at faking it. I faked it all the way through high school, all the way through university, all the way through graduate school, and now in the pastor, I'm still faking it. You walk into my office, you see all these books, you think I must read. Reading is a chore for me. But I've learned to get by with certain cheats. So I know there's a great value in reading. I know it's really important to be reading. And so I try, I try and discipline myself to read books. And when I read certain books, I've I've learned different tricks you can do to kind of get the gist of the book without having to read every word in the book. One of those is to read the beginning and the end, right? So if you read the introduction and the conclusion, you get a pretty good idea for what's going on in the book. If you take a chapter and you read the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter, you get a pretty good idea of what's going on in the chapter. If you read a paragraph and you read the first sentence and the last sentence, you usually get a pretty good idea of what's going on in the paragraph. Now all the parents are going, don't tell my kids this. (laughs) Read every word. All right. There's all sorts of different uh, words for, for what that is. That's something that's just common across across written communication, across languages and cultures. Sometimes you can call it bookends like I did, top and tail, sometimes it's referred to. Even there's a fancy word inclusio for it. But the point is, how something begins and how it ends shapes how we know what's going on within it. And that's crucial for this passage. So I just want to read the bookends. Let's go up to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 and read them. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. That's that's the beginning. Let's look at the back bookend. In 2, 1 and 2. So 1, 1, and 2, 2, 1, and 2. What comes right after these quotations? Therefore, in light of all seven of these quotations, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Do you notice that both bookends focused on God speaking? And both bookends focused on the relationship between his old way of speaking and his new way of speaking. So in chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that God spoke, his old way was through the prophets. And what do we learn in chapter 2, verse 2? That that old way of speaking through the prophets was declared by angels. 
Do you see that link? His old way of speaking that we're comparing, his old, new way of speaking, that old way of speaking was the declared by angels way of speaking on these bookends. Loosely speaking then, and I, it's loose, but I, it's what's going on here. The message of the Old Testament is the angelic message. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 14, it calls the angels ministering spirits sent out to serve those, serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So this is really important for understanding our passage. As you think about the comparison between the angels and the Son, what we really need to be thinking about are the two ways that God has spoken. Formerly through the prophets, now through the Son. The unfolding revelation, the final revelation. The angels, 2, 1 through 4, tells us, were trustworthy messengers revealing God's message. So what is it then that their message reveals? And that's why the author carefully collects, selects seven passages. And these seven passages draw our attention to a mysterious figure lurking, it seems, on every page of the Old Testament. He wants to intrigue us with who this mysterious figure is. One who's said to be God's son. One who is a king. One who is both God and man. One whose kingdom is eternal. One who reigns with God. And as the author unveils this Old Testament figure, he keeps hammering home the point, hey, this isn't talking about angels here. He's not talking about angels here. The angels' message wasn't about them. They pointed to somebody greater than themselves. So this mysterious figure is not nor cannot be an angel. But there's a certain sense in which saying over and over it's not the angels is just a way to maintain the intrigue. Because if you've noticed up until this point, up until 2 verse 4, he hasn't come out and told us who he's talking about yet. He doesn't tell us this is Jesus. He just says, it's not an angel. It's not an angel he's talking about. It's like he's saying, there's a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. It's not an angel, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. Because I'm drawing you in. Inviting you to dig in and study the scriptures like you ought. So this morning, I share the goal that the author of Hebrews has. I want to whet your appetite. I want to convince you that you need to get to know your Old Testament. I want to rattle you from your lethargy about Jesus. I need to be rattled from my lethargy about Jesus. I think most in this room know that Jesus died for our sins. 
that we could be forgiven. That is important foundational truth. And I'm glad that most of us understand that He really did die for our sins. And He really did rise from the dead. But, but, even knowing those things, too many of us are unwilling to actually dig into our Bibles and really get to know this Jesus who died for our sins and rose from the dead. So this morning, we're just getting a little sneak peek a little preview, a, a little flyover of the treasures that the Old Testament holds for us. And I'm going to do that by just moving through briefly the seven different passages that the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has selected for us. So let's begin with Psalm 2. That's the verse quoted in the first half of chapter 5. You are my son today, I have begotten you. So turn back in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. It is on page 448. I'm not going to have you turn to every single of the seven passages, just for the sake of time, but most of them I'll be having you turn to. So let's turn there. Psalm chapter 2. Now this is what's known as a coronation song. You probably guess what that means. It was written to be sung when the king took his throne when he was anointed king. But there's a problem with this coronation song. When you read it, it ascribes to the king or the anointed one things that don't really add up for a human king to do. So I'm just going to read it short. See if you can pick up on that. Think about, you know, a new monarch taking the throne and everyone gathering, singing this song. Even a, 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 in Israel, a monarch in Israel, listen to what it says. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
Do you see how it blurs the line between Yahweh and his rule and the king? And who is it that is the one saying, here's the decree. He said, today you are my son. Is this the human king that God has called his own son? Is it the human king who will conquer and rule over the whole world, all the nations, his heritage? Is it the human king, the so-called son, who the people are either to take refuge in or perish? It doesn't seem so obvious, does it? If you were reading this prior to the coming of Jesus and you looked at that, you'd probably be scratching your head. There is some mystery in this psalm. I mean, is it mere hyperbole? Or is God actually saying, a king from the line of David will arrive and fulfill all of this? interesting and all the author of hebrews does is he plops that down is say the angels aren't the answer to this mystery someone superior to them is the answer to the mystery but we do have these two clues one this mysterious figure lurking in the old testament is called God's Son, and He is a King. So the second passage that's quoted in in the second part of verse 5 of of Hebrews is 2 Samuel 7.14. So turn there. This is on page 259, so you're moving toward the front of your Bible. Page 259 if you're using the Pew Bible. 2 Samuel 7.19 or 7.14. Now as you're turning there, I just want you to fill you in a little bit on the backstory of this passage. David was the great king of Israel. He's the one that's always pointed back to, lifted up. He's the great king of Israel. Well, toward the end of his life, he's saying, look, I've decided I want to build a temple for God. So he tells the prophet of God that, and initially the prophet Nathan says, thumbs up, but then he hears from God that's not what he's supposed to do. So he runs back to David, and he has a message for David. So I'm going to pick up at verse 12, kind of in the middle of David, Nathan's speech to David, and I'm going to read through verse 16, 2 Samuel, 12, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16. Nathan says to David, when your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
Now, this has got to be talking about Solomon, right? David's son Solomon. He's the one who built the temple. He's the one who committed iniquity, right? But by the time the author of Hebrews is quoting this, it's quite clear that Solomon's throne wasn't established forever. He died. And even if you want to say, well, someone from Solomon's line, if as long as someone from Solomon's line is on the throne, then it's a forever reign. Well, by this time, it's not one of Solomon's sons reigning in Israel. It's the Roman government. And forever seems to be a major point. You notice in verse 16, your throne shall be established forever. Your kingdom will be made sure before me forever. And Solomon's temple itself had long been destroyed. By the time Hebrews was written, they were on their third temple, and that one would be destroyed by the end of the century, never to be rebuilt again. So again, there is mystery. What is Nathan talking about to David? Who is this Son of God? Who is it whom God says, I will be a father to him? Who is it whose throne and kingdom will be established forever? Again, all we know from the author of Hebrews at this point, it's not the angels. But who could it be? Now, these are actually interesting questions. You actually dig into these Old Testament passages with reading them for, as real text, not just kind of this esoteric floating mumbo-jumbo from God, but actually real truth from God that matters. You start digging into it. Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7. And you realize there's something interesting going on here. But you don't get to ask these kind of questions. Unless you're someone who reads your Bible and reads it carefully. Perhaps, just perhaps, there could be something more to the Old Testament than just the story of David and Goliath. Perhaps this long-forgotten portion of our scriptures is worth reading and exploring even if at first it feels a little bit like reading Shakespeare. Now let's look at the third passage that's mentioned in uh, the book of Hebrews. This is the one that's... uh, I'm just going to turn back there real quick so I can read it there. It's there in verse 6. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, which you can find on page 175. So if you went backwards to the front of your Bible to get to 2 Samuel, you need to go even further back to page 175 or Deuteronomy 32. Now before I dig into this particular passage, I need to tell you something um, There were two versions of the Bible in Jesus' day. So there was the the Hebrew version, and there was the Greek translation. So when we look at our Old Testament, most, most of the time it's translated from the Hebrew version, 
because the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. But sometimes the New Testament authors quoted from the translation, the Greek translation. And so occasionally when you're looking at a New Testament quotation and you go back in the Old Testament, it sounds a little different. And it's only because they're, the New Testament authors are quoting from a Greek translation and the people who've translated our Old Testament are doing it from the Hebrew. And that happens with some of your translations. When you look at verse 43, it'll be done from the Hebrew, which will sound a little different from the Greek, which was quoted in our passage. So that's just a little FYI. But let's look at Deuteronomy 32. Um, All of chapter 32 is a song of Moses. So Moses gathers his people. They're about to enter into the promised land. He's about to die. He doesn't get to go in the promised land with them. He's been trying to teach them all these things so they remember them. And he goes, I know, I should teach them a song because people remember songs. So I'm going to teach you a song to remember before you go into the promised land. And that's what chapter 32 is. Now, it's an interesting song, but it's not all that peppy. It's kind of a downer song. Think Nirvana, not Katy Perry. Moses, in this song, rebukes all of the nations for not fearing God. Then, he rebukes Israel for all her disobedience. He says God has rightly judged her and he makes the case against her. Then he returns again to the nations and he tells the nations that God will ultimately vindicate himself and his people by bringing judgment upon them. That's the song. That's what he wants people singing as they go into the line. Except for the last verse of the song. Which is the verse that's quoted in Hebrews, which is a really strange verse considering the tone that the song has had up to this point. Look at verse 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. The verse calls on the heavens and the gods, or as the book of Hebrews translates it, the angels, to rejoice. Now other versions go with the Hebrew and say that all the nations should rejoice. But the point is regardless that everyone, everywhere, all people, all things in heaven and on earth, all should bow down to the God who will judge and bring ultimate victory. The heavens and the angels should, the earth and the nations should. Now why does it end with the people and the angels worshiping and praising the one who brings judgment? A bit of mystery there. Something that we have to work on, wrestle with. I mean, could it be that his victory is also salvation for some? And not just Israel. Could it be that the victory he brings extends beyond Israel to be a universal victory, a salvation 
to the ends of the earth. You see, this unexpected ending of Moses' song leaves us with a bit of mystery. Even the angels are bowing down to this mysterious one who ushers in God's victory. A victory that we all should rejoice in. I love, I love what he quotes from. The last last verse in this song of Moses gets you thinking. There's a lot more to this Old Testament than you know. You can go back to Hebrews. I told you we're going to keep moving at a brisk pace. There, the author of Hebrews quotes a fourth scripture. This is verse 7. This is from Psalm 104. He quotes this one just to underscore that the angels cannot be the answer to this mystery. He wants you to know the angels are out, they're not a possibility. He does so by quoting Psalm 104. Now, you don't need to turn back in 104. Just notice from the quotation that the angels are merely God's stewards doing his bidding. And when he talks about that, he doesn't use them as high and lofty warrior kings whose reign is forever and who enter into some sort of special sonship relationship with him. How does he describe them? He uses them as wind. As flames of fire. The ethereal nature of that, the the, the fleeting nature of that. As we delve into this mysterious figure of the Old Testament, we aren't talking about angels. We're talking about something far greater, far more important. And that brings us to the next quotation, the fifth quotation, which is from Psalm 45. Turn back to Psalm 45. I'm going to make you turn your pages this time and one other time after this. So, Psalm 45 is on page 471. Now, Psalm 45 is another song of praise to the king. This one's called a love song, but it's a song full of love and praise to the king. You see that right in verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verse to the king. Now let's be really clear. This psalm is about a person. Look at verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. That makes it pretty clear. We're talking about a human being. But you're reading along, you're reading along, you get to verse 5. Your, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. And then verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of right, uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Is verse 6 supposed to be read as some random interjection about the goodness of God, who is the ultimate king and somehow the actual king derives his kingship from him, and so we can talk about that king, the God king and the human king and the sin? Or is this man, this human king who's being praised, being called God? Which seems to be the most natural and straightforward reading. And the author of Hebrews, inspired by God, settles the question for us. God and a man are one and the same, and they meet together in this mysterious son figure who lurks on the pages of the Old Testament. And do you catch that? The most natural reading of Psalm 45 suggests that there is a man, a Davidic king, who is also God, who will reign forever. This is the mystery of the Old Testament. I mean, mean, who could be the answer to this? Are you starting to see how the Old Testament, these different mysterious figures all pull together? Are you developing an appetite for the wonder and beauty of the Old Testament? Let's keep going back to Hebrews. Hebrews. Verse 10 is the sixth quotation. This one is from Psalm 102, and you don't need to turn there, though it's a great psalm. It's a psalm that addresses our suffering, and it does so by pointing to the permanence of God in comparison with the impermanence of the world. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So God alone is permanent. Everything else in the created order is impermanent. So in the midst of our suffering, when we're At the whims of all this impermanence, look to God who is the one permanent thing. That's what the psalm is doing. Now, do you remember Psalm 2, the first scripture we looked like? It said there was one who will conquer everything else in this world. Do you remember 2 Samuel 7, which we looked at next? It said that there was one whose throne would be established forever. Even Psalm 45 said there is an eternal throne. This time ascribing it to a son of man who is God. But Psalm 102 makes clear that God and God alone has years that have no end. God alone is forever. Are you seeing what the author of Hebrews is doing for us? He's linking the chain together for us. The mysterious one of the Old Testament, based on the clues that are in the Old Testament, must be God. The Son, the mysterious Son figure, is God. The Son is King. The Son is a man. And the Son is God. 
This is the mysterious one that the author is inviting us to discover. Now the last verse. You might be, some of you are going, keep going, this is great. And some of you are going, okay, this is a lot for me. I need to take a little breath. There's one more, but it's the best one. It's like bringing in Mariana Rivera at the end, right? And this, this is the closer. This is the clincher. He saved the most profound for last. It's Psalm 110 that he quotes. And you just got to turn there. I'm sorry. Page 509. Psalm 110, if you're using the Pew Bible, page 509. I'm just going to read it, and then I'm going to make four observations from it. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Observe one. David wrote this psalm, right? David wrote it. Observe two. He calls the future king, the future Davidic king, that means his son, he calls this future Davidic king, my Lord. Yahweh said to my Lord. Now, you don't call your son Lord, especially in that culture, and especially if you're the great King David. So that's, that's just the first question. Who is this son of David whom David himself calls Lord? Now observe three. This Lord of David is invited to sit at the right hand of God. That's kind of a big deal. David was probably, I mean, if you look back at the history of the kings of Israel, David was at the pinnacle. But not even David seems to fill this mark, sitting at the right hand of God. In fact, if you look at all of human history, there's only one offspring of David in history that even comes close to fulfilling the mark, and he far exceeds it. There's a third option. Observe fourth, verse four. This Lord of David, who sits at God's right hand, is called a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. Now that needs a lot of unpacking, which the author of Hebrews will do for us later on in the book, so we're not going to do it. But just notice again that word forever. This time not talking about a forever king, but a forever priest. So the son is a king, 
The Son is a man. The Son is God. The Son is David's Lord. The Son is a priest. And the Son reigns forever as king and priest. This is just seven passages from the Old Testament. All this just from seven passages in the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews keeps talking. It's not angels we're talking about. We're talking about something. We're talking about someone far greater. So turn back to Hebrews chapter four or Hebrews one. My question for you is: Did it work? Are you intrigued? Are you thinking maybe uh, Shakespeare is worthy of your efforts, even if it takes some extra work? You see, the, these seven quotations are constructed in a way designed to leave us asking. So, if this son figure is not an angel, then who is it? But before he gives us our answer, we're interrupted with the phrase in 2-1, pay much closer attention. Pay attention to what? To the angelic message, to the Old Testament at the very least. Right? Because that's what verse 2 goes on to describe. It's proved reliable. We've seen it over and over, the judgment of God against people who reject His word. But it seems to even be more than that. Because now he says, don't just neglect the angelic message, but pay attention to the message that they served, proclaiming a salvation, the the new message. And this, we're told in the first half of verse 3, this salvation, this rescue, this deliverance was declared first by the Lord. That is Jesus, but he still isn't going to use his name. And then the second half of verse 3, it was attested to by those who heard. That is the disciples. And verse 4, it was given witness to by God through the Holy Spirit's gifts. So, I don't know if you remember Polaroid pictures. Some of you are like, I don't remember them, but my parents like to talk about them. If you go to the camera store today, they have instant pictures that you can print out now too. I don't know if they take as long to develop, but when you print them out, you had to shake them for a while, right? And pretty soon, the picture starts to form, becomes a little clearer and clearer. And I think that's what's happening for us, right? This picture is becoming clearer and clearer because Jesus preached the good news of his kingdom and salvation, right? That's what he came doing. And the apostles or the disciples who heard these words passed them along to the Hebrews and and all of us via the New Testament. And just in case we doubted that Jesus truly was God's final revelation, the last spoken word, God lit up the world with signs and wonders and miracles, bearing witness that Jesus' revelation was full and complete. You see what we're seeing? Pay attention, look, listen to the words that God's spoken. It was developing and developing throughout the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes and he announced the salvation is here. And his disciples make that known. And the signs and wonders testify, this is it. This is the message. 
we ought to rejoice. We stand in a privileged position. The promised son, the royal God-man who would conquer God's enemies and rule his people with justice, this king has come. So, we must pay careful attention to him and to the words which reveal him, lest we drift away and neglect the great gift which is ours. Now I know we've traveled a lot of ground this morning. Just a little summary statement. There, there is a good revelation that came from the angels that we know as the Old Testament. But their own revelation pointed to a revelation that was greater than themselves, a son. That figure has now come and his revelation far surpasses the angels, for in him and him alone we find salvation. So let's get to know him. You know, the skydiver takes great care to inspect his parachute, to make sure it's folded just so. He knows how it works inside and out. Why? Because it's his salvation. The skydiver does not neglect his parachute. The rock climber does not neglect his harness. And the Christian ought not neglect Christ. Because we know he is our salvation. Let's pray. Father, there are people here who don't even know the basics about Christ. They haven't embraced the salvation Jesus brings. Draw them to yourself. And then there are many others here who know the basics of God's sal- your salvation in Christ, but who have not pressed further to get to know this Jesus in all the depth and beauty that He's laid out in Your Word. And so I pray that as we've, we've worked hard this morning, we've done this hard work, you would awaken hearts and minds, wet appetites, encourage people to be people who do the hard work of getting to know Jesus through the Old Testament, through the whole revelation, the whole word you've spoken. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.